about that. Hebrews chapter 6, let's look at the first nine verses uh, this evening in, in our Bible reading, and we'll do some review from last week and then hop into uh, new material tonight. Verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on under perfection, uh, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism and of laying uh, on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of the eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh the rain uh, that cometh off unto it and bringeth forth herbs, meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh to cursing whose end is to be Burned, verse 9, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, uh, though we thus speak. Let's pray for the message tonight. Lord, we ask that you would help us to settle our hearts and minds. We've all had busy days today and uh, a lot going on and our own burdens we're bearing, the burdens of others that we love and care about that are, are weighing heavy on our mind. But Lord, for a few minutes, would you help us to check out of that and check into Bible study? And, Lord, that you would feed us from your word tonight. Lord, I just want to be your vessel. I think of uh, Balaam and, uh, Lord, not a good man, but for just a few moments you took over his mouth and you blessed the people, blessed your people. And, Lord, tonight I ask that you take over my mouth and that you just speak uh, to the, those that are here. Lord, if I say all the right things but the ears of those uh, uh, that are uh, receiving the words are not trying to listen, it doesn't matter. So, Lord, help me not only to speak the right words with the right tone and the right emphasis. And Lord, I pray that the people here would listen as well. And help us to leave here tonight changed. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Okay, so last week we began looking at uh, verse 1 and worked down through uh, verse 9 on some level. Uh, but I was able to sort of lay the foundation uh, without putting the framework on top of the foundation. So tonight we're going to review what we covered, and then we're going to uh, really try to drive home some very important truths. One person came up to me last week when I was done and said, all that stuff you had up there on the screen didn't make any sense to me. And I said, well, that's because I didn't get to the, you know, I didn't, I, it's like I gave you the joke but didn't give you the punchline, right? I gave you the, I laid the groundwork but didn't really drive home the application. So tonight we're going to spend most of the time uh, doing that. But let's just go back and look here. The end of Hebrews chapter 5, uh, uh, the, uh, the writer or God through the writer kind of just uh, uh, pivots, does a 90 degree turn and says, listen, I want to keep teaching you about Melchizedek and how Jesus is the better priest. But you all need to grow up a little bit because you're babes in Christ and you, you can't handle meat. You need milk. And so uh, uh, two Wednesday nights ago, we looked at this idea of it's time to grow up. And that's what the end of chapter 5 uh, is telling us is, listen, you, you should be doing the teaching. Instead, you're still getting taught. You should be eating meat. Instead, you're drinking milk. Uh, you're not a full age. You've not gone through those experiences. And it's time for you to mature in the Lord. Then chapter 6, look at verse number 1. Therefore, having the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto maturity. Let us go on unto perfection. That word perfection there means 
maturity. The best way I know how to describe that word perfection there is that if I put you on, on a football field and said you need to run 100 yards in 10 seconds flat and you line up there and I said go and by the time you hit the 30-yard line, you were at three seconds on the stopwatch. I would, I would watch your foot cross the 30-yard line. I'd see it say three on my stopwatch, and I would say what? I'd say perfect. And you get to the 40-yard line, and it says four seconds flat. I'd say perfect. And each time you crossed that next 10-yard marker, and it was, it was right on the money, I would say perfect. That doesn't mean you are perfect. That just means you're, you, you are where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. And that is what being perfect is in the New Testament in the Christian life. It doesn't mean that you're with, without sin. It means that God has markers laid out for your life, and you're reaching those markers when you're supposed to be there, and you're striving to be better. The word perfect here, maturity, also carries with the idea of being sanctified, that you're following God's process to make you into the image of his son, and you're not slouching in that process. How many of you here have ever had to watch a stubborn child? How many of you have ever had to oversee, maybe it was your own, maybe it was someone else's, a stubborn child? You know what? When they're, uh, you see some kids, they're two, three years old, and uh, they don't look like they weigh a whole lot, but it's like they have lead in their bones. You know what I'm talking about? They're just thick bone and they're heavy. And you get a kid like that who's stubborn and he just, he just plumps down on the ground when you tell him to come and he isn't moving. And then you try to pick him up and he does the dead weight thing. You know what I mean? He's just, you know, you can't grab him and he's like, he's like he's all greased up. You just can't pick him up. And so you take him by the hand and you just drag him. And hope that his parents don't know that you did that. Uh, trying to get him where he's supposed to go. Um, uh, but you know, sometimes Christians are that way with God. God says, hey, come on, I, I want to grow you and make you better. I want to walk you through this sanctification, this maturing process. I want to see you become more uh, into my image because now you're my child. And we, But I love my sin. And we plump down where we are and we're stubborn and we won't change. And I do believe that this passage is addressing the attitude of someone who just says, God, I'm going to live how I want to live even though you saved me. I'm going to trample your Grace. Yes, you saved me and I'm yours, but I, I couldn't care less about your plan for my life. I am self-absorbed, I am self-consumed, and I am stubborn. And so this passage is talking about what it means to mature. It maturing, again, or this idea of perfection is that you are where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. If God were to come down tonight... Uh, in, in the form of, of a spirit that we could see or maybe even wrap himself in flesh again, and he were to get in your car and go home with you, and it was just you and him, or say you didn't drive here, maybe he just takes you in a room in the church and just you and God sit down, and God were to look at you in the eye and say, I know, I know, you can fool the preacher and you can fool the people in the pew, uh, you can fool your Sunday school teacher, you can fool the deacons, you can even fool your spouse, but I know, I know the stubbornness of your heart. I know your refusal, your, your aloof, cold, careless attitude about spiritual growth. And I know it's been going on for a long time. Would he say that to you or would he say, you know what, all in all, you're tracking. 
All in all, you're on the move. Hey, you might be a couple of tenths of a second late to that 30 or 40 yard line, but you're making the effort. Which would it be for you tonight? Have you plumped down and not maturing? Are you maturing at a rate that's slower than it ought to be? Or are you crossing those markers in the Christian life when you're supposed to cross them? That's what this passage is about. Uh, uh, So number one, we looked at the Jewish Christian's focus. The Jewish Christians focus and we said that verses one and two are just the uh, the author writing to these Jewish folks, these Hebrews and saying to them, listen, quit focusing on all of the things that were a symbolism or rather a symbol of the coming Christ and rather focus on the fact that Christ has come. Lay those things to rest. Verse one and two, uh, we looked at uh, look, look with me at verse at the end of verse one there It says not laying again. The foundation of repentance from dead works. Well, that, those were the animal sacrifices, the dead animals that were offered up uh, as their work uh, to God, uh, 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 their end of faith toward God. We looked at Acts 20, 21, where it talks about the Jews and the Greeks and not just putting your faith in God, but also in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, they put their faith in God that he would send a Messiah. In the New Testament, we, we don't get to heaven by believing in God. You say, this isn't just semantical. This is very important. In the New Testament, we do not get to heaven by putting our faith generically in God. We get to heaven by putting our faith specifically in Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He made it very clear. During our praise time, Miss Pauline said, I'm thankful that he is the I am. Well, guess what Jesus called himself over and over and over and over and over again while he walked this earth. He said, I am the ego and me, the great I am. I am. I am. And uh, he was calling himself God. And uh, that's how we get to heaven. But they were focused on the Old Testament uh, faith in God, not the New Testament faith in the manifestation of the Messiah or the Christ in the person of Jesus. So if, you, if it feels like I'm, I'm making your head spin or I'm going too fast, this is just a recap. And if that's the case, I'd encourage you to go back online and watch last week's message where I elaborated a little more. Then we looked at doctrine of baptisms. And we said that word baptisms there is translated why. Washings everywhere else in the New Testament. This is the only place that's translated baptisms. And this is all of the rituals that went along with washings in the Old Testament. We looked at the laying on of hands. And we talked about in Leviticus 1.4 how guilt is transferred from the guilty party onto the animal with the laying on of hands. And they were still sort of reveling in that idea, forgetting that God had laid his hands on his son and transferred our guilt onto Jesus and that that process had been fulfilled in Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the primitive Old Testament doctrine uh, found in the end of Daniel, uh, eternal judgment, likewise primitive in the Old Testament, more complete in the New Testament. And he's saying to them, listen, your focus is wrong. You're focusing on all the things that point to Christ, but Christ has come in the form of Jesus. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He lived. He died. He rose again from the dead. He founded the church. He ascended to heaven. And now we don't need to bury our nose in Old Testament ritual. We need to worship Christ. And so uh, there's a, a lot of, uh, of of this throughout Hebrews and really even throughout uh, the various uh, epistles, uh, uh, letters to the churches where uh, some Jewish folks were. But uh, you see here that uh, they were distracted. So we looked at their direction. He says time to move upward. And we looked at their distractions. Then we looked at number two, the Christians falling away. 
the Christians falling away. And uh, we got through letter A, and uh, that's where we stopped last week. So let's quickly review this. We looked at different theories of verses 3 through 6. Let's go back and look at verses 3 through 6 again. It says, And this will we do if God permit, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have uh, tasted of the good word of God and the power of the world, world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, I mentioned this last week. Uh, theologians, uh, uh, folks who write commentaries, all seem to agree that this is a, a one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to interpret. Uh, because if you read it on its surface, and let me repeat that, on its surface, it would seem to say that you can lose your salvation. It would seem to say that. Um, however, we know that that's not what it says. Well, how do we know that's not what it says? Because uh, if it does mean that, then the Bible contradicts itself. Over and over and over and over again, we're told that you cannot lose your salvation. Over and over and over and over again. It's a it's it's locked tight. So if if it doesn't mean that, then what does it mean? Well, here quickly, here were the theories we looked at. Some say their theory is this passage means you you can lose your salvation or loss of salvation. Others uh, say that salvation to this person never occurred. And, and we'll get into why I don't believe that's accurate here in a moment. But the next one is that this is simply a hypothetical. Now, of all of those that are on the screen, uh, 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 the last one and this one to me carry the greatest validity to it. Again, look at verse number, look at verse number four. For it is impossible. It is impossible. Look at verse six. If, if they shall fall away. And so a hypothetical is being drawn up here that some would argue that can never be followed through on. If you're saved, you can't fall away. And so they'll say that verse 6 is nothing more than an impossible hypothetical. I don't know that that's the case, but uh, that's one possible explanation. The other explanations out there is that this applied only to first century Jews. And again, the thought here is that these folks knew that animal sacrifices were wrong. They had come to Christ and been saved. And the thought is that they were, go, if, if they were being warned that if you go back in the temple and you again practice in repentance of dead works and, and washings and all of the things that we looked at in verses 1 and 2, if you go back and involve yourself in that, then God's going to take salvation away from you. And there are those that would argue that, uh, that because now that animal sacrifices are no more and the temple has been destroyed and uh, that, that that only applied to them and it doesn't apply to us. I don't believe that because if that theory is accurate, that means that God was going to take his salvation away from people. Again, not something I see. I know that we're getting into technical things. Uh, we're almost through it. Bear with me. The last one here is the one I threw at you right before we closed last week. And it was this. This isn't directly about salvation. Look at verse number nine. Look at verse nine. But beloved, and I believe this is the key that unlocks the passage, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that what? Accompany salvation, not about salvation. These are things that 
accompany or come around or complement or are after salvation. They accompany salvation. Now, tonight I'm going to lay out my case for why I believe uh, this isn't directly about salvation and how I believe what this is really about is a strong warning against Christians who live in a constant backslidden state. That's what I believe this passage is about. And I don't mean, I don't believe this passage means that those that live in a constant backslidden state are going to go to hell. But I do believe that what it means is that you can get to a place where God will just give up on your Christianity. He'll let you be. He'll turn your body over to be destroyed by Satan so that your soul can be saved in heaven. That's what I do believe that this passage means. And we'll look at that. Let, letter B. Let's define some terms. Letter B. Defining Terms. Look with me at uh, some words here, and uh, let me give you some definitions based out of the, the, the root words. Look at the word in, um, let's see here. Look at the word in verse number four, the word enlightened. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Some would argue that uh, this is someone who had a head knowledge of Christ, but never a heart knowledge of Christ. Well, I don't think that's what that means. The word enlightened from all of the sources and materials and and study materials and whatnot I have in my office, that word enlightened there means this. It means given light, brought to the truth. Given light, brought to the truth. So this is someone who has been brought to the truth. The day I got saved, you know what happened? I was enlightened. I was enlightened. I've had people who I've been witnessing to, working on for a long time, and uh, they, I, get the, I get the feeling that they are on the edge of salvation, but they're afraid to take the leap. How many of you ever know what I'm talking about? Maybe some of you were there. Uh, when, I was a junior, when I was a children's pastor, I, I ran a junior camp, and we would rent out Camp Rapidan in Virginia. Camp Rapidan had the largest, uh, uh, what do you call that when you, you get the harness on and, and you, you fall off and, and you go on a long ride? Zip line. Uh, sorry, the, thank you, uh, Jake. Uh, the term escaped me there. But they have the largest zip line for any Christian camp of any denomination in America. And so uh, all the kids were just all about it. You know, they had all the safety things in place and whatnot. And, and they're pushing me to do it. Well, I'm a, you know, I'm a thrill taker. I like that kind of thing. Uh, you know, I, I pro- at one point, some point in my life on my bucket list is to parachute out of, out of an airplane. And when I finally get my wife to sign off on it, I'm going to do it. Um, uh, and uh, the deacons to sign off on it. They're going to maybe make me take out a $2 million policy and make the church the recipient of the money. But anyway, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a thrill. Uh, I like thrills and that sort of thing. But I got up on top of that platform. You had to scale like a pole. And you're standing on this little platform. And you got your harness on. And you, you, you put the deacons ring up there and I'm standing on the edge and I'm looking down about 60 feet and the guy says just lean back and fall off and I said I don't want to lean back and fall off and the kids at the bottom of the pearl going you chicken I leaned back and fell off because I didn't want to let a bunch of little kids down <laughs> um, uh, you know I, I've met people who have that same sensation of fear of but, but I don't want to let go and trust Christ because I, I'm afraid of what's on the other side of that. You just have to take that leap. Someone who's enlightened is someone who just said, you know what? All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. Jesus, I'm not relying on me to get to heaven. I'm relying on you. This is describing 
someone who has indeed been enlightened or saved. The next word I want us to look at here in the passage is the word tasted. And we see that means experienced, experienced. Look back with me at verse number four. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. Now, the word tasted there, um, uh, if you go back to the Greek, and again, I'm not trying to critique the, the, the writers of the King James Bible. They were far more intelligent than I am. They were far more knowledgeable of the Greek and, and English languages than I will ever be. They had more knowledge in their in their uh, their cut-off fingernail than I have in my whole body, okay? Uh, so uh, I'm not in any way critiquing them, but sometimes in the translation from the Greek to the English, the, the, they would struggle to find a word that completely described in English what the Greek said, and other times they would find a word that maybe was more descriptive than what the Greek said. And uh, this is one of those cases where you read it, the word tasted, and you get the idea that they just took a little sip. They just took a little nibble. They just, you know, it it was like a a small bite off an hors d'oeuvre, just a little tiny uh, taste, a a sample. But that's not what that means. That word tasted there, when you go back to the root language, carries with it the idea of a full-blown experience. They experienced the heavenly gift. They, they were enlightened. They were brought to the truth. They saw the light. Uh, they, they experienced the heaven, heavenly gift. Look with me at that word partakers, partakers. That word partakers means companion or sharing in. Uh, it says they, they were made partakers, companions of the Holy Ghost. Companions of the Holy Ghost. How is it that if this passage is describing someone who walked up to the edge of salvation but didn't experience it, how could they be a companion of the Holy Ghost? Listen, to be a companion of the Holy Ghost, that means he's moved in. He's taken up residence. He lives there. I, I, I really believe that maybe the, the saddest uh, the saddest state of a Christian is to have the Holy Spirit living in you, and, and then he has no control. He has no control, because you selfishly won't give him any. And that's what we have going in here, at, going on here. At some point, this person or this, these people, uh, the, 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 the Christian who fell away, had been a companion with the Holy Ghost. He had felt the comfort of the Holy Ghost. He had felt the work of the convicting hand of the Holy Ghost. Uh, he, had, he had been challenged by the Holy Ghost and, and, and had yielded to the Holy Ghost uh, uh, but, uh, and had been a partaker with the Holy Ghost. Uh, look at one more word here. The word is fall away. That word fall away means commit apostasy. Commit apostasy. What is apostasy? Someone here, this is a Bible study. Some of you are Bible scholars. What is an apostate? Stephen? Against Scripture, abandoning the faith. An apostate would be someone who's intentionally luring others away from the truth in a malicious or maniacal way. Uh, someone who's committing apostasy. Do you know that you don't have to teach bad doctrine to be an apostate? You could just backslide and run to a rebellious, sinful, Egyptian style, and I mean Egyptian in the, in the bondage sense, uh, back under the bondage of sin. I'm talking about a Christian who used to sit in church, nod his head to the preaching, hit the altar, make decisions, was making an attempt to live God, uh, live for God, and now they're out of church completely, and on Sunday nights they're sitting at a bar with a beer in their hand, 
cussing like a sailor and watching a basketball, watching a football game. You know what that is? That's, a, that's living an apostate lifestyle. That, that's someone who's living in apostasy. Look, look down with me at um, uh, verse number 5. Uh, it says, And have tasted the good word of God and the power of the world, powers of the world to come, if they shall become apostate, if they shall backslide, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified in themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. The key to understanding this is found in that word repentance. Turn over to Revelation chapter number 2 and chapter number 3 with me. Revelation chapter 2 and number 3. Now these, uh, chapter 2 and 3, uh, w- uh, was written to an institution that was created by Jesus Christ. Uh, seven different of these. What was that institution? It was a church. Okay? So can we, can we just uh, state this openly and emphatically? If, if these letters are being written to a church, then these people are saved. Is that a fair statement to make? By the way, there are a lot of religious institutions in this area that falsely have the word church on their sign. Because there's really either no one saved or hardly anyone saved in there. Just because you're religious and go through a set of rituals and call on the name of God, if you don't have Jesus in your heart and the Holy Spirit's not in you, you're not saved, then you're not a church. A church is in a called out assembly of Believers. So if there's no believers, it's not a church. Are we all with that? So if, the, if, if these are churches, and they are, then these people are believers. Now, I want to uh, show you something here. Look at Revelation chapter 2, and uh, uh, let me show you a few instances in chapter 2 and 3. These churches are called upon to repent. And I'm doing this off the top of my head. Uh, I'm doing this improv here. So I'm having to try to quickly find the word repent uh, uh, in here. Uh, repent, repent, repent. Someone help me here. So, look at verse 5. Thank you. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. This is the church of Ephesus, and, and, and the church of Ephesus is saved. They're clearly stated in here they're saved. They're told to repent. Uh, you go down through, and you find the word repent over and over and over again. We're not going to take the time to embarrass the pastor where he can't find the verses. But you get the idea here. You go through and you find the word repent over and over and over again. Now go back to first, uh, first uh, rather Hebrews chapter 6. And look here, for it is impossible for those, verse 4, who have been once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. This is not a salvation repentance. This is a repentance of maybe 1 John 1, 9. If we confess and forsake our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us for all unrighteousness. It's not that God won't forgive you. It's that you'll never reach that level of Christianity that you could have been at if you hadn't chosen to run and backslide and live in a backslidden state with such a defiant attitude for so long. Now, inevitably, someone's going to ask the question, well, pastor... Where is that line? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know, but I know this. I want to stay as far away from that line as I can. I don't want to be guilty of being an apostate, someone who has fallen away, living a, 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 living a lifestyle that doesn't please the Lord. I, I don't want to live that way. Now, you're all here on a Wednesday night, and so I don't think you want that either. Or you wouldn't be here tonight. You'd be home watching whatever's on TV, uh, whatever popular show's on TV right now. But you're here. And uh, you're making that effort. But can I tell you that I've known a lot of Christians who are faithful to church on Wednesday night. A year later, well, where's brother such and such? Where's sister such and such? 
And I wish I could say, well, they're going to the church down the road. But I have to drop my head and say, well, they're just out of church right now. Pray for them. They need a lot of prayer. Be careful with that. Because once Satan has isolated you from your church family, you are open game for him to squash. I need to say this right here. I hope everybody's listening. Your involvement at church may ebb and flow. You hear me? Your attitude toward the leadership of the church may ebb and flow. But if you allow Satan to use some burr under your saddle, some bother in your heart to pull you out of church... I promise you Satan's going to have his way in your life. He's going to destroy you. Now, he won't, get, he won't take you to hell, but he'll make you feel like you're in some form of punishment here on earth. If you're a lion and you want to get to, let's say, there, there's, there's, a, there's a pack of Malibu and you want to eat one of them. You, you know what you do? You separate one from the group or you wait till one is straggling behind. And once you have that one little animal that's helpless by itself where the pack can't come around it and defend it, then you prey on it, you pounce on it, and you have it for lunch. And and Satan's number one tool to get Christians is isolation. Once he has isolated you from your church family, I don't care how strong you are in your faith. I don't care how long you've been saved. I don't care uh, how well you know the Bible or how many verses you have memorized or how many days in a row you've, you've read God's word and had your devotions. Once you are separated from the pack, once you are out all by yourself, it's just a matter of time until Satan has his way with you. And boy, I tell you, I've seen it time and time again. Here's what I'll tell you. If it gets to a place and you're ever attending here where somebody or something bugs you so much that you don't feel like you fit here or belong here, the first thing you need to do is approach me and talk to me about it and let's work through it. Second of all, if you've approached me and tried to talk to me about it and we're not getting anywhere, then you don't leave here to go sit at home and do nothing. If you're going to leave here, God doesn't call you away from church unless he's calling you to another church where you can stay connected to that church family. That falling away is a dangerous thing. Letter C, notice dividing truth. Dividing truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. All right, let me give you three thoughts under dividing truth here, okay? Uh, First of all, notice, pursue clarity. Are these going to be up there on the screen? There it is. Pursue clarity. What do you do when a passage is confusing? Do we build entire doctrines on passages that are obscure? We don't do that. We we pursue clarity. All right? Uh, The best thing you can do in your Bible study is understand this. There are no contradictions in Scripture. Not one. Can I tell you something? If they found a contradiction in Scripture, it would be on the front of Time magazine tomorrow. If they found a valid contradiction in Scripture. There are no contradictions in Scripture. So if you're reading something that seems to contradict with other verses, you need to, first of all, pursue clarity. The second thing I want to tell you here is prayerfully compare. Prayerfully 
compare. What do we do? We lay out all the verses on a topic. And we look at all of them together. All right? So if uh, Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And John 10.27 says, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. And uh, 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 all these other verses in the Bible that promise us, uh, uh, again, Ephesians 4, thereby ye are sealed under the day of repentance, and uh, that cannot be taken away from you. Uh, Jesus said in John, I, 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 him, see, in him I will no wise cast out. I will in no wise cast out. Then guess what? We need to lay all the verses down together, and we need to uh, prayerfully compare. Throw that quote up there on the screen for me. We should never use the obscure to explain the obvious, but rather the obvious to explain the obscure. If there is a passage that's obscure, you don't run to that to try to explain all the other obvious verses in the Bible. No, you go to what's obvious in Scripture, and then you pull out the obscure, and you, you make sure that that obscure fits with what's obviously there. You prayerfully compare. The last thing you do is you provide context. Provide context. Does anybody need that quote to be up on the screen a little longer? Is everybody good? Okay. Provide context. And uh, two, two types of context, and I don't think these would be on the screen, although they might, but uh, you can write these down underneath, historical and intellectual. There they are, historical and intellectual. Um, when you read through the book of Galatians, you have to understand who it's written to. It's written to a bunch of uh, Jewish Christians who are trying to hold to Judaism and hold to Christianity at the same time. Hebrews is sort of the same way. And so Galatians is written to a bunch of legalists. That's, that's what it's written to. And so when you read through Galatians, you have to understand that. Otherwise, you get tripped up in some places. When you're reading through Isaiah and Ezekiel and some of the minor prophets, there are some things there that can seem confusing and baffling. You need to go back and look at the time it was written in and who it was written to and provide that historical context, also intellectual context. What do I mean by that? You never, ever, ever just read one verse in the middle of a chapter and pull, extrapolate some truth out of that. You never, ever do that. If you're reading a verse and you're really confused about it, I would encourage you to back up a handful of verses, 9, 10, 11 verses, and then read on through 9, 10, 11 verses. And look at it in context of the passage. So uh, we need to make sure that when we come to a passage such as Hebrews 6, uh, 4 through 9, that we're dividing truth Carefully. All right. Let me make some strong spiritual applications here, and we'll we'll uh, shut the Bible study down. Uh, number three. Let's look at the Christian's fruit. The Christian's fruit. Again, looking at this within context, chapter six, verse one opens up by saying, "Let's talk about maturity." All right. And then verse nine says, "These things accompany salvation." Well, what accompanies salvation more than sanctification? Sanctification is that doctrine right next to salvation where we're growing in Christ. And so uh, we're, we, we begin the chapter talking about maturity or sanctification, and we end this, uh, this truth uh, uh, talking about sanctification. And so the verses in the middle fit what that's talking about. Now, sanctification and fruit bearing fit hand in hand. Our theme this year being rooted in Christ, we've had a whole lot to say about spiritual fruit. But look with me at verse number 7. It says, For the earth which drinketh in the rain, that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them, uh, by whom is dressed, receiveth blessings 
from God. And so what he's saying here is that these people sat under a wellstream of water there for, for a whole long time had all of the nutrients, all of the, uh, all of what they needed to succeed. Again, this passage is written to warning backslidden Christians. You know what the problem with backslidden Christians is? It isn't that they haven't been given the truth. It's that they've been given the truth and they refuse to bear fruit while the truth was given to them. You know, I, I, uh, I, got, I, I get pretty disgusted when I see a teenager that's 16, 17, 18 years old. Mom and dad have been taking them to church their, uh, his, his or her whole life. And they sit in the back of the auditorium with their arms crossed like this, slumped down in the pew. Like, when I turn 18, I'm not coming back here anymore. You can't make me. This is what this passage is talking about. Now, assuming this uh, young person would be saved. You have sat under godly biblical preaching. You live in an era where the word of God has been uh, put in print, mass print for you to have and, and, and study and learn and memorize. And you want to run out of the church house and you want to live the life of a sinner. Now, can I tell you, uh, for all of us here tonight, that that may not be you. You may not be that 18-year-old punk on the back pew with your arms crossed, slops with a look of, of misery on your face. But can I tell you that it, this can apply to us, where we come to church, we're in a routine, we come in, we sit down, we hear the teaching, we hear the preaching, and we get up, and years go by, and little to no change in our Christian lives happen. Shame on you. And God says you plateaued. You've plateaued and you're not, you're not, you're, there's no longer that pressing on the upward way. You shrug your shoulders and say, yeah, I'm good enough. And you know what? You're getting, you're getting the word of God rained down upon you all the time. And there's just no fruit. Let me give you number four here. We're out of time. Number four, notice the Christian's fire. Christians fire. Look at verse 8 and 9. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though uh, we thus speak. You know what verse 8 is describing? It's describing the Bema seat of Christ. It's describing the judgment seat. Pastor David preached in church a couple Sunday nights ago out of 1 Corinthians 3 and had Brother Jason come up with fire. How many of you were here to see the fire in the auditorium, okay? Uh, not, you know, figurative fire, actual things on fire in the auditorium. Praise God we didn't set off any smoke alarms or any uh, sprink, uh, trippity sprinkler systems, but uh, I don't think we have one, so we're safe. But nonetheless, um, now everyone's looking up. Um, when this talks about being burned, this isn't talking about you going to hell. In your backslidden state. You know what this is talking about? Your works one day passing through the fire in heaven. Those are going to be tried. Your thorns and briars are going to burn up. The only thing that will matter is the fruit that you bore for Christ. The fruit you bore for Christ. I'm going to tell you something right now. In one sense, bearing fruit for Christ is really difficult. You know why? Because my flesh gets in the way. Makes it Makes it tough. But in another sense, bearing fruit is really simple. All I have to do is yield to the Lord. And if I will yield to the Lord and let Him lead, then I will bear fruit a hundredfold, maybe thirtyfold, maybe sixtyfold. But I'll bear my share of fruit. I must yield my will to the Father, and I must follow His lead in my life. 
And so the warning tonight is this. Do not be a backslidden Christian. If you do, you will cross a point with God where he says, I am not going to renew you anymore. You're going to live in a backslidden state whether you want to or not for the rest of your life because you would not get right no matter how hard I pushed, prodded, and pulled. And so let's not let that happen to us. Let's not be backslidden Christians. For others of you in here, you know a backslidden Christian. Can you get on your face and pray for them? Can you ask God to turn them around before they cross that line? Let's stand together. We'll close in prayer. It's good to have you all here tonight. And I hope that uh, you better understand Hebrews chapter 6 and you're ready to go forth and live for the Lord tonight. Let's pray to be dismissed and ask God's uh, hand of blessing on us the rest of the week. Sure is a joy to get to see, be here and serve with you all. I love Connecticut because of you, because of White Oak Baptist Church. makes living in Connecticut that much uh, easier. Brother Mike Monks, could you close us in prayer tonight?